Good morning. If you would, get a songbook out. Put your songbooks up. Don't get a songbook out. Get a Bible out. You threw me off with the marking. Get a Bible out and turn to 1 John chapter 1. Get a Bible out. As soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. It's good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us, and we just want you to know you're welcome here. We're glad that you're here, and we want to get to know you and do whatever we can to make you feel at home and to get you to know God better or get you closer to God. But we're glad that you're here. Uh, for those who are here in our assembly at the 9 o'clock hour, uh, you know that we have a special guest among us. His name is Brent Dyer. Brent spoke to us uh, during that first hour, and he is here because he is uh, considering us, and we are considering him for uh, the preacher training program, and uh, he is thinking about uh, coming here and working with us, and so we're kind of doing the, uh, the smell test this weekend, and uh, so... We'll, uh, we'll give you more information about that as more decisions are made in the future. But my exhortation to you is if you have not met Brent, please do that. And please uh, get to know him and definitely make sure he knows your name because he hasn't met hardly anybody he doesn't know today. There are a lot of new names is what I'm trying to say. So don't get your songbooks out. Get your Bible out. And uh, we will be studying here from 1 John chapter 1 as we go forward. Good to have Brent here. Good to have our visitors with us. We're glad uh, that you're all here. 1 John 1 and verse 5 is where I want to start. 1 John 1 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John says Jesus came to reveal something about God and that message is that God is light and there is no darkness at all. But when I look at myself, I see something different. I see lots of darkness. In fact, I'm like Isaiah, who when he sees the vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, he says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I know I am a sinner. Or when Peter is on the boat with Jesus, and Jesus gives him the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It seems to me that the more I think about God being light, the less like God I feel. So the question is, how is it possible for us to be certain or assured that we are right with God when God is so good and we are so not good? Especially as Christians, we are aware of the great gulf between man and God. And we're aware of how short we fall of the expectations God has for us. And yet God tells us that we're in a relationship with him and that our sins can be forgiven. And yet daily we struggle with temptations and we battle our pride and our anger and our lust and our selfishness. And sometimes the cumulative effect of that is just that we feel this nagging sense that we can't possibly be right with God. So how could we possibly have assurance or confidence? A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about assurance. In fact, we had our whole song service centered around the idea of assurance. You know, we sing a lot of assurance songs. And yet, I re received some questions about that. Tell us more about how we can know that we're right with God. So I want us to talk about that for a few minutes from this letter from 1 John chapter 1. And what we're talking about, I'm going to call, not I'm praying for you, I'm going to call it the tricky question of Christians and sin. That is, 
There are some difficult things that we need to think about and talk about, but they're also extremely practical. So it seems to me that that we have a battle here. One level is about the doctrinal battle. So the question is, can Christians sin? Is God just okay with sin? Can God still forgive sin? But on the other end is the idea, well, are are we just okay to sin because God can forgive it? Does sin not matter to God? What do we say about the fact that sometimes you and I, as disciples of Jesus, stumble and sin? This text is going to help us. And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three questions that I think will be the key question in gaining confidence and assurance in our walk with God. Now, the first question is this. The first question is, how do I walk? Look with me at verse 5. 1 John 1 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So God is light. There is no darkness at all. So verse 6 then says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is, I know God, and walk in darkness. God is light. I know him, but I walk in darkness. He says, verse 6, we lie and do not practice the truth. So I want to call your attention to that word walk, because walk is a significant term. When the Bible uses the metaphor walk, it's stressing the continual, ongoing direction of our lives. Just like we would say, I took a walk, we're not just talking about the pace, we're also talking about the accumulation of steps that we took, the whole course of what we did. We had a walk. In the same way, the Bible says we have a walk and that we walk in a certain way or in a certain direction. And the question that John is raising here is, what does your walk say about your allegiance? If you say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in a way that's not like God at all, then you are lying. What John is saying here is that there is no such thing as a Christian faith that does not impact how you live. There is no such thing as a faith where you say, I believe in Jesus But then I just keep living in sin. I keep doing what I want. I know God and I know God is light, but but I do my own thing. John says, that's not Christian faith. You are lying. You don't know God. And in fact, John does this with several different things throughout this letter. He talks about basically when we know God, it changes us and it changes our lives. Those changes show up. For example, if we know God and God is love, John says, then we're going to love people. In fact... If we're born of God, we're going to love other people who are born of God. That's the way it works. You can't hate people and know the God who is love. It just doesn't add up. Or he says, if we say that we know him, we're going to keep his commandments. It's natural that knowledge is going to lead to loyalty. If not, you kind of ask, well, do you know him at all? But what helps us in this discussion is that word walk. That John is saying, pay attention to the bigger pattern of how you live. That is, zoom out. Instead of focusing on every little moment, focus on the broad strokes of your life. Now, I want to say this because this matters. We tend to focus on, when we are feeling insecure, not just the little moments. We tend to focus on the worst moments. 
I know you have those in your life just like I have them in mine. Moments that you look back on and when you think God wouldn't accept me, you think of that. You think of those things, those times, those words, those actions. And John is saying, God not only has the power to forgive those things, but when God has changed you and you know him, things look different in your pattern of life. Not that you don't have lows in the past, but that you are now walking in the light. Now I want to take a moment before we jump into verse 7 here. I want to take a moment and say that walking is about a pattern of life and not small things. And I want to show you why I say that. Turn the page to 1 John 3. In 1 John 3 and verse 7. Now you may be reading from a different version. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. My version is going to use the word practice. Your version just may something, say something like sin. 1 John 3 and verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now you might hear in my version, it sounds a little softer than some of the older versions, which say he cannot sin. That if God's seed abides in you, you cannot sin. Well, that's a challenging idea, isn't it? Because we know the reality that sometimes Christians sin. But I want to say what John is saying here is best interpreted as the idea of practicing righteousness or practicing sin. Something walking, something ongoing. The reason is because of what we read back in 1 John 1. So turn with me back to 1 John 1 and verse 8. 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So there you go. Either we have sin in us or we can't sin, but it can't be both. I think the reconciliation here is simply the idea, how do I walk? So let's talk about that. Look at verse 7 with me. 1 John 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So remember, God is light. In him is no darkness. So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we do have fellowship with him. So some people are confused. In verse 7, he says we have fellowship with one another. Well, who is the one another there? Is that talking about fellowship with other Christians or is it talking about fellowship with God? And it's actually in the context, both of those explanations and possibilities. If you look back in verse 3, he talks about having fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And then in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness. So I believe the one another is best explained in verse 7 as fellowship with God. I think what he is saying is our fellowship with God is real when we walk in the light. And in verse 7, he then says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. Now that is vital because John is not writing to non-Christians who need to be cleansed from their old sins. If he did, he would not tell them, hey, just start walking in the light. That's not the way you get saved from your old sins, is it? Just start living better? That's not the gospel. No, he would tell them you need to repent and be baptized. Now what happens here is he's writing to Christians and he says, we need to be walking in the light and if we are walking in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us 
from all sin. He is saying that our walk matters even though our walk is not perfect. Our walk may have sin, and yet we are not living in sin or, in his terms, walking in darkness. So the question that I hope you're asking in verse 7 is what does it mean to walk in the light? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, it cannot mean sinless perfection. It cannot because then verse 7 shouldn't say anything about being cleansed from sin. Walking in the light means that my general pattern of life is to walk in God's way. It means that I ask the question, what does God want? I ask the question, is God happy with me? Does God want this to change? I want to learn more of God's will so that I can do it. I want to be more like God. I want to love like he loves. I want to honor him. He is the center and the focus of my life. I rearrange my life to please him. I change my attitudes. I change my plans. I change my actions to do what God wants me to do. The fruit of the Spirit shows up in my life. I am walking in the light. Now, when I do that, I will not be perfect but it will be clear that I am walking in God's light. I really do have fellowship with him. And God promises me cleansing when I do sin. So you see what matters then is, well, is that true of me? Am I giving that effort? Is that my focus? Is that where my attention is? In other words, is sin a sometimes an aberration or is sin the pattern? Is sin something that I have to say, yes, I did that. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. I'm going to change it. I'm going to work on it. Or is sin something where we say, well, yeah, that's just kind of what I do. How do I walk? That's the question John gets us to ask. Now, some folks will get confused about this because they will say, oh, this is about works salvation. You know, if you do enough good and you walk in the right way, then there's cleansing in that. But notice, that's not what he's talking about. He says in verse 7 that that salvation is by his blood, that his blood cleanses us from all sin. And then in verse 9, he's going to talk about how he forgives us. Blood and forgiveness are not work salvation ideas. This is about grace, God giving the gift of purification and salvation. But what John is saying is, if we're really in a relationship with God, how can that possibly not have an impact on our lives? So that we suddenly live differently. How do I walk? The second question that will help us here is the question, what do I say about my sin? I want you to notice, we're going to get into verse 8, 9, and 10 here. I want you to notice how each of these verses start with saying something. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. So say here is more than just your words. It's more than just the words that come out of my mouth about it. It's more my attitude toward the sin that is reflected. It is reflecting how I feel about my sin. So the, the basic danger is that because God is light, we tend to hide our sin. We've talked about that a lot. I have before from this pulpit. We tend to hide our sin. And John is saying hiding your sin is not the proper solution if you want to be in fellowship with God. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this is the idea of claiming perfection. Okay, I am not, I'm not sinned, I'm not guilty, I'm, I'm fine. 
And he says, you're already wrong. But this temptation, the temptation to justify ourselves, is not new. That happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, particularly Eve, blaming one another, blaming the serpent. It happens with Aaron. You remember, hey, I didn't do it. Uh, the people, they wanted me. They gave me all this gold. and put it in the fire. And hey, this calf came out. Not my fault. Saul says, the people pressured me. They wanted this. Everybody seems to pass the buck, hiding their guilt. But if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, he says, and the truth is not in us. Now, I want you to notice a difference. Look at verse 6 again with me. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Then verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those verses read differently. I read verse 6 as kind of a doctrinal statement. But verse 8, verse 8 is personal. Verse 8 is what you say about what you've done. And that hits a little closer to home. Because we tend to deceive ourselves in John's words to believe that we're really better than we actually are assume that because we've hidden something from people it must not exist it must not be important so what is the proper response what's the right thing to say about my sin not to deny it but verse 9 verse 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the word confess here means to say the same thing. We are saying what God says about our sin, that our sin is sinful, that it's contaminating, that it's deserving of death. When you talk about confession, verse 9 says if we confess our sins, confession, biblically, always has the tone of I'm sorry for this and I'm going to try to stop it. Confession is not the idea that we're proud and we're bragging. It is instead we're sorry and we're confessing it, admitting we've done wrong. And so the assurance in verse 9 is that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is a promise, by the way, that Christians need to lay hold of. You need to underline this verse because it is a verse that will matter in your life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please don't just view this as a procedural thing. Oh, I sinned, so now I've got to go through this procedure. It's not about procedure. This is about a heart that is sorry. I have done wrong, and I'm sorry I did it, and I'm going to do differently now. Verse 10 if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if we deny sin altogether, we're not just deceived. He says we've also made God a liar, because God, after all, says that we're sinners. What do I say about my sin? When I talk to my children, I tell them, this is the most important decision you will ever make. What do you say when you realized you've done wrong? Because if we have the right reaction when we've done wrong, we can always come back to the Lord and gain forgiveness. In fact, we can always rebuild relationships with other people if we're willing to say, I have done wrong. But we have this temptation, don't we? To grow bold and defiant. I haven't done anything wrong. Who are you to condemn me? Maybe we get mad. Somebody says, you shouldn't be doing that. And you say, don't judge me. Or maybe we say, you know what? The Bible doesn't really say that. It says this. And we argue with the Bible. Or we argue with their interpretation of it. 
Or maybe we just get so defensive because, you know, we're losing an argument. Or we've said something publicly in the past and we don't want to go back on it. Whatever it is, we become proud and we get hardened and we end up justifying ourselves and our sin. So I tell my children, this, this is the most important choice you will ever make. What do you say when you realize you've done wrong? Again, I'm not just talking about what words. I'm talking about our attitude toward when we fail. Peter and Judas both failed. Only one of them was willing to confess and own his sin and restore himself to God. What do I do when I sin? Do you know this, this question is also the question that defines hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not when we serve God and we occasionally make a mistake and own it and turn it around. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is acting like we don't sin or we haven't sinned and we would never sin. That's hypocrisy. So you see the difference. One of these is about denying and the other is about confession and admission. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but these verses have been the source of a lot of controversy over the years. In fact, that's the reason I call it the tricky question, because it can be tricky of what you do with these verses. Sometimes people want to document where people are at every step in the process of these verses. But I believe that we're often asking the wrong questions of this text. And so I've tried to present the questions I think are the most important questions. And the most important question is this one, number two here. What do I say? What do I do when I discover that I've done wrong? And in fact, I would go so far as to say this, and I believe I can prove it, but I also believe it viscerally. Christians don't fall away because they sin. Christians fall away because they stay in sin and they refuse to come out of it. They keep going down the road. They keep walking in darkness. They refuse. They deny. They defend instead of confessing. So it is vital, brothers and sisters, that we learn the importance of confessing and forsaking sin. In fact, we need to be familiar with that process with one another. That with regularity, we can say, you know, I discovered I was doing this. I've been struggling with this. I've been working on this because I'm leaving something behind to pursue something better in my walk with God. And when we do, we need to hold on to the assurance of these verses. And that brings us to the third question, which is, what is my hope when I sin? Look in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2 and verse 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So this is a very interesting verse because John simultaneously affirms two things at once. One is the goal which is, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And the other is the practical reality. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So there are two extremes here that still plague us. One is that, you know, you have to be perfect before you can please God. And John's already dealt with that. There's no way that's going to happen. We know that too. But the other extreme is that because sin can be forgiven, it's just not that big a deal. And John says, oh, no, no, it required God sending his son to die for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Sin is always the big deal because sin always cost God his son. Verse 2 now, verse 2. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we have an advocate, he says, an intercessor, and here he calls them the propitiation. The idea here is of a sacrifice that atones. He is the one who takes sin away, even sins that we commit after our conversion. So he says, don't sin, but if you do. Don't sin, but when you do, know that Jesus is there for you. Now, there have been hints at that throughout our text. Remember, his blood cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, 1 John 1.9. Here he says, this is how it happens by the blood of Jesus. So we have to affirm sin is a big deal. And we also have to affirm there's still hope, even when we struggle with sin. So let's go to Romans chapter 8. I want to bring this all together here. Romans chapter 8. Because when Paul talks about this, Paul takes this into the realm of assurance. And that's where I want us to go for our last few minutes here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Remember, John called Jesus an advocate. Here Paul says, God is not against us, but he is for us. And the way he describes that is really powerful to me. Verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So the picture here is a courtroom picture. And God is bringing charges against us. And yet, as he's advancing the charges, he instead, at great cost to himself, sacrifices Jesus to have the charges drop. Isn't that an odd picture? The picture of the, the courtroom where there's nobody to judge you, where there's no charges, where you stand acquitted, in fact, unopposed. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So you get the idea? Everything is switched now. There's nobody to accuse. There's no one to condemn. The very one who was accusing and was condemning is now on our side and is actually interceding for us. So for Paul, this gives great assurance. Who is there that we have to fear? If God is for us, who could be against us? And so he goes on to say, in fact, the, the rest of Romans 8 is just a beautiful picture of that, where he says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. There is nothing that could possibly come between us and a God who loves us that much. That is intended to give us confidence. So what is my hope when I sin? It's the same hope. It's the hope that God will receive me and forgive me through the blood of his Son. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, I hope you'll take those three questions, and I want to drive them home for just a moment to talk about what that means for us and, and have some conclusions here. First of all, what these things mean is that I can be confident despite my imperfection. 
These words are here to reassure us. They are written to Christians just like you and me who struggle with sin and sometimes feel insecure. And they are written to say, you can still be right with God. How do you walk? What do you say when you sin? Where do you go when you need forgiveness? I can be confident as I look at my walk and I see I'm walking in the light as best I can. I can be confident as I confess my sin. I can be confident because I am looking to Jesus. And in fact, I I said this a couple of weeks ago and I want to repeat it again. Very often the reason we feel insecure is because we are judging our spiritual state by how we feel. John talks about later on, you know, there are times when your heart condemns you and he says, but God is greater than your heart. There are times when we feel insecure because we focus on ourselves and our own emotions. But if we are to look at Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus offers us and the hope we have through him and the perfection we can find in him, we suddenly become a lot more confident. So you see the lesson. Don't focus on yourself and your own emotions. Focus on Jesus and what he's done for you and the goodwill he has toward you. There, confidence can be found. The second conclusion is I have to deal with my sin. Every time I discover that I'm in sin, I am tested. Am I willing to accept the shame of this sin? Am I willing to admit it? Am I willing to confess it? Am I willing to forsake it? Or am I too proud? Am I too stubborn? Am I too committed to it? Can I say this? Christians should be getting better at this. We should be growing in how we deal with our own sin. It should be something where that process of confessing and humbling ourselves becomes so abhorrent to us that we begin to say, I don't want to do that again. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just going to change. We should be getting better at owning our sin and confessing it. This is a consistent practice because we're going to sometimes struggle. But I want to say Christians should be improving. We should be growing. Once we get the basics down and we begin to grow in Christ, isn't it natural that we should draw closer to what God wants us to be? The Bible says that those who belong to Christ are set free, not enslaved. We're no longer serving sin. If we are serving sin regularly, if we're walking in sin, something is seriously wrong. But if we understand that there are times when we occasionally make mistakes, then we learn I've got to deal with that as unpleasant as it may be and continue to grow. And the third thing I want to say, and then we'll close, is that I must be honest with myself, with others, and with God. Running through this text, I hope you noticed it, is the thread of self-deception. We deceive ourselves. We call God a liar. We are a liar. That we're deceiving ourselves, we're deceiving other people, and we're trying to deceive God. Sometimes we think we are better than we are. These verses should wake us up. The idea here is that I have to tell the truth about my sin to me, to you, to God. Confess your sins. I need to be certain not to trust other people's evaluations of me. You may only see a small part of who I really am. The only one who I can trust to tell me who I truly am is God. And I must learn to be honest with myself about what I see and hear from God. But I find 
that honesty is greatly helped by having a group of people who will know me and care for me, who I can speak openly and freely with, people who I know I can confess sin or I can talk about blessings, and in either situation, they're going to be supportive and kind and take me to the throne of God. So I can be confident, I can deal with my sin, I can be honest with myself and others and God. I appreciate your attention this morning. I understand that a lesson like this seems a little more technical, but I want to assure you, this is where we live. And if you're not doing battle with sin in your life, then perhaps there's some things that need to shift and change for you. And I hope that as we go through these things, and as you think about your life, that there are specific areas, specific problems that you're thinking, I need to work on that. I need to change that. I need to confess that. And if there is, I hope that you'll get help from your brothers and sisters in Christ to help overcome those sins so that we can continue to walk in the light. Might be someone here this morning who is ready to make their life right with God, get rid of sin in your life. If you are not a Christian, the gift of Jesus' salvation is conditioned on you putting your faith in him as the Messiah and putting your life in his hands, saying, he will be my Lord. The Bible calls that repentance, change from one way of walking to another. And you need to be baptized, buried in water so that your sins can be washed away. And if you're ready to do that, this invitation time is for you. Now, if you're this morning and you are a Christian and you know that these words have pierced you and you know that you need to change your course of life and you'd like for this congregation to know about that and to pray with you and to work with you, this time is also for you. If there's any need that you have, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.